0: Hello, and welcome to the show. You're listening to Terra Informa. You're
1: listening, you're listening. You're listening. You're listening to Terra yeah. Informa. Terra
0: My name is Andrea Miller, and I am joined by...
1: Sonic Patel. Before we begin this episode, we would like to acknowledge that this episode was produced in Treaty 6 territory in a with skygan, Beaver Hills House, or so-called Edmonton. We are broadcasting from unrecognized Pappas Chase Cree territory. The Papas Chase Cree were displaced following consistent efforts from local officials like Frank Oliver to discredit the legitimacy of their treaty right to this territory and reserve number 136, now South Edmonton.
0: Not confined to history, this region is also the present homelands of many other First Peoples who build their lives here, pursue livelihoods, and gather together, including Cree, Métis, Blackfoot, and Dene. Wherever you're listening from, we ask you to consider whose version of history informs your understanding of the land you are on.
1: This week, we're bringing you the second episode in our two-part series on Indigenous fishing livelihoods and the management of commercial fisheries in Canada. If you were with us last week, we heard from PhD student Krista Tremblett about the Nagatik Mi'kmaq lobster fishery that launched last fall and the subsequent conflict.
0: Today, we are traveling to Treaty 8 territory in the Northwest Territories to hear about the coexistence of Catladici First Nation fishers and the Great Slave Lake commercial fishery. Our guest today, PhD student Christine Ray, is a social scientist with lived experience of this area.
1: She will be sharing her learnings from archival research, as well as from first-hand conversations with local knowledge holders gathered through qualitative interviews. We invite you to consider who claims to speak for communities in the research and media that you consume, and how research in collaboration with Indigenous communities can be done in a good way.
0: Today, PhD student Christine Ray introduces us to the story of the Great Slave Lake commercial fishery. Christine is working together with Catladici First Nation, or KFN, to explore the histories of the Great Slave Lake region and management of the commercial fishery.
2: My name is Christine Ray. I'm a fifth year PhD student um, in the Faculty of Ailes, Agricultural Life and Environmental Sciences and I am studying environmental sociology with Dr. Brenda Parley. So originally I'm from the Northwest Territories. I lived in a town called Pine Point, which is a mining town on the Great Slave Lake uh, until I was 10 in 1985 when the mine started to shut down. Living there was pretty fundamental to the work I do now, um, partly because my PhD project is based on the Great Slave Lake looking at commercial fisheries management but also because the Indigenous community partners that I'm working with live on um, the southwest side of the town that I grew up on. So they're actually my neighbors, but I didn't know them at the time. And so, as I mentioned, um, I'm looking at the Great Slave Lake Commercial Fishery and the role of the Indigenous communities around the lake in management historically and till now, Uh, specifically one community, the Kaladici First Nation, they live on the Kay River Dene Reserve, which is on the east side of the Kay River mouth as it flows into the Great Slave Lake. So I'm working with Kaladici First Nation, or KFN, and a key part of my project is looking at their perspective to the extent that they've shared information with me.
1: Long before the region around the Great Slave Lake had an established commercial fishery, it has been home to many Dene, Métis, and other Indigenous nations, each with their own distinct ways of living on and relating to that environment.
2: The Dene people have been living around the Great Slave Lake for time immemorial. One of my interviewees, he put it really well, he talked about how um, the Dene had very intimate knowledge of all the different ecosystems within their territory, and that They knew them so well, and they knew what was happening in those ecosystems at each time of the year that they knew exactly where they had to be at exactly what time. So, for example, the Buffalo River uh, connects Buffalo Lake to the Great Slave Lake, and Buffalo Lake is actually where the KFN folks uh, would spend winters and part of summers. So their understanding of the Inkanu, which is one of the main commercial feces in Great Slave Lake, it spawns from the Great Slave Lake up into Buffalo Lake in the spring where it spends the summer and then it goes back out to the lake in the fall. And so they knew exactly when that fall spawning run would happen, October 10th. And so people would, would be there right within hours of the, of the spawning run.
0: We can trace the precedent for indigenous livelihood fisheries to the 1999 Marshall decision. Named for Donald Marshall Jr., the case before the Supreme Court affirmed the treaty rights of indigenous peoples across Canada to harvest and sell fish in pursuit of a moderate livelihood. You can check out our last episode to hear about how the Marshall decision played into a conflict between commercial and indigenous fishers on the Atlantic coast. The
1: Marshall decision the ambiguity of a moderate livelihood, and tensions across commercial and subsistence fisheries are all deeply complex topics that are based in the colonial roots of this country and ongoing settler-Indigenous relations.
0: So while the violence that took place in the East Coast erupted only last year, many of these same questions have played out here on the Great Slave Lake. With its establishment over 70 years ago, the Great Slave Lake commercial fishery brought an influx of fishers to the region and introduced new tensions.
2: The commercial fishery on the Great Slave Lake does have quite a few Indigenous, it's almost 90% Indigenous, the commercial fishery. But the thing is, those Indigenous people came from Alberta and Saskatchewan and outside the territory. They came to Great Slave Lake, they were fishing commercially elsewhere. And either were invited by the government of the Northwest Territories at certain points or were encouraged to to move to Great Lake Lake is another option. So that's another key thing that it took me a while to figure out that even though many people in the commercial fishery are indigenous, or only a very small percentage are actually from Catlavici First Nation, the rest are what they call non-resident. So that's another one of the, the tensions. That's been being talked about and actually like throughout the archival documents that I got, you can see that that's one of the first concerns is, but they're not from here. I think some of the fishers don't really understand what KFN's perspective is. A lot of people don't know the history of, you know, the indigenous use of the area. The stories that are told about the fishery in the Gracely Lake anyway are very um, it's the economic story how much money does this fishery make you know how much poundage comes out of the lake every year the fact that people from KFN used to live on the west side of the Hay River mouth where now is the town of Hay River and actually were pushed off by um, fish plants and pushed out of those those areas, which is some of the history that I don't think is quite as well known amongst the, the communities there. But I, I think that's from sort of some of the underlying violence that has happened around the commercial fishery.
1: The establishment of the commercial fishery also brought new opportunities, and the relationship between KFN and commercial fishers initially began as one of mutual benefit.
0: But as the fishery grew, it didn't take long before Indigenous communities around Great Slave Lake began to notice changes on the lake and a decline in fish stocks.
2: And the commercial fishery actually started in 1945 after the war and rapidly escalated. So the highway into Hay River um, was built in, I think it was completed in 49 and thus um, fish that had originally been barged out down the slave river and down from waterways which is near Fort McMurray was now they were able to truck fish out so I think that really increased the scale of the commercial fishery and it's my understanding that in the first 10 years there were many many boats on the lake many independent fish companies that would um, either have their own fleets of fishermen going out to bring fish or they would also buy fish from the indigenous people in the area. So people from KFN would be able to sell their fish to these fish buyers. So it was good for them because it was a guaranteed source of income that would augment their trapping income which could be hit or miss. So it was good for them in that in that sense, the Grace lake, lake was known for being very abundant in fish stocks, and it only took about four years for the Indigenous communities to start noticing declines in whitefish and lake trout. And by 1952, the DFO, or the Department of Fisheries and Oceans, officially said, okay, there's a problem here, the fish are declining.
1: With decision-making around management in the hands of the DFO, they implemented quotas and created a crown corporation to ensure guaranteed buyers and high prices for the commercial fishery. Enter the Freshwater Fish Marketing Corporation, or FFMC. However, this change made it difficult for KFN fishers to participate in this new, more competitive market.
2: There was a crash in the early 50s, and then by 1960, there was definitely a problem. The industry, even though it started strong, was declining already. In 1969, the government decided to put the marketing of inland freshwater fisheries all under one Crown Corporation. So that was called the Freshwater Fish Marketing Corporation. And from 1960s, 1969 on, That organization was responsible for marketing all of the inland fish from Northwest Territories, Alberta, Saskatchewan, and Manitoba to international ports of call, which basically meant uh, you had a guaranteed buyer, so it was good for the people around the lake, guaranteed buyer, but the FFMC then was in control of prices and it was up to them to keep prices high and to provide a moderate livelihood for commercial fishermen. So when that happened, licensing regulations changed and the First Nations from Catley Beach First Nation were for the most part pushed out of the fishery, partly because they didn't have the money to finance boats to to compete with the other non aboriginal commercial fishermen around the lake. So They basically were left out of the fishery until maybe in the last decade. Uh, They've been doing a lot to get back into the fishery and to alter the management structures.
0: In addition to the commercial fishery, subsistence or domestic zones were created. In their domestic area, up to 10 miles offshore of the community, KFN could only fish for personal, family or community use and was not permitted to sell that catch commercially.
2: When the fishery opened in 45, they pretty quickly established subsistence zones or domestic areas around basically all the communities. So they tried to, right from the beginning, mark off areas that were reserved for Indigenous communities and that were closed to commercial fishing. So that happened right from the beginning, which is a good thing. So the categories were commercial fishing and domestic fishing and the rules basically were that communities could only fish out of the domestic area for their own use families' use and potentially like some sharing but the fish that were taken from the domestic area could not be sold commercially so that was a hard fast rule from the beginning and one of the arguments that kfn is actually making is that that the Definitions of commercial versus domestic need to be rethought. So that's something I'm going to get into more in my thesis, just looking more into that argument. But that shows that the the categories are are placed in certain places to benefit certain groups and you know control who's benefiting for what from what.
1: And since it was outlined in the Marshall Decision more than twenty years ago. What constitutes a moderate livelihood for KFN members fishing in the Great Slave Lake region is changing.
0: Moderate livelihood needs to be adapted to reflect today's standards of living and to take into consideration factors like rising fuel costs, time taken to transport and process the catch, as well as fluctuating market prices.
1: And as extractive industries bring new job opportunities with less barriers to entry to the region, fewer young people are choosing to make their livelihoods through fishing.
2: For the most part, the interviews that I did, many, if not all fishermen have said that they barely make what would be considered a moderate livelihood. Prices of fish that they receive have been low for a long time. And part of the reason that is, is because the Grace Slave Lake fishery is, it's really far away. So it's in the southern part of the Northwest Territories, but really it's almost, it's just on the line of being profitable. because There's a lot of fuel that's required to catch fish. So when the fishery began, fuel prices were a lot cheaper than they are now. So the model, I think, worked a little better then, but now the fuel prices are so high. You have to boat around um, the lake to get the fish and you have to bring it to the plant. And then the plant has to truck it uh, from Hay River to the main processing plant in Winnipeg. And that's when it's sent out to to buyers. And in fact, on the Great Slave Lake, many commercial fishermen have been leaving the fishery to go do other things because they can't really make a really good livelihood so a lot of the, the average age is 60 and older of the fishermen and there's very few new entrants or new people getting into fishing partly because there's other options in the northwest territories you can go at the diamond mines for great money or you can drive a truck or other options that are not as difficult as commercial fishing and there's some suggestion that people's ideas of like what an adequate livelihood are changing these days and maybe not so much around around fishing. So one of the things that Cat First Nation is trying to make the regulatory situation more a little bit more flexible so that they can have more opportunities for young people and elders to get out there and, and fish.
0: Given these barriers to entry, and a history that has seen KFN fishers pushed out of the industry, the community is taking deliberate steps to encourage more community members across generations to be involved in the commercial fishery. KFN is redefining the categories of commercial and domestic with the Aboriginal Communal Fishing License. This license enables KFN members to fish safely within their domestic area, up to a limited quota that they regulate and to sell that catch commercially, building capacity among youth and elders to get involved in the commercial fishery.
2: The latest development that the Katlidichi First Nation has pushed forward is something called the Aboriginal Communal Fishing Licensing Regulations. So basically, what they did was they took their domestic area and the DFO now are able to fish commercially in their domestic area and sell it commercially under uh, a limited license that they control so the community itself is able to distribute their quota amongst their own community members and sell commercially so that's a ch- that's a big change actually when you think about you know the the definitions of of commercial versus domestic yeah they're pushing a lot of things forward and DFO seems to be willing to move ahead with these changes. So it's a window of opportunity right now. And the federal government seems to be increasingly willing to recognize the authority of Indigenous governments, at least in this example, and create structures where Indigenous knowledge and management approaches can be actually put to to use.
1: If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Terra Informa, a production of CJSR 88.5 FM. This week, we are hearing from PhD student Christine Ray about Catladici First Nation and the Great Slave Lake commercial fishery.
0: Along with Catladici First Nation, there are many stakeholders who are invested in the well-being of the Great Slave Lake and its fishery. Established by the Department of Fisheries and Oceans, The Great Slave Lake Advisory Council, or GSLAC, was set up as a way to bring local stakeholders together for decision-making around management of the commercial fishery.
1: Now, KFN is proposing the creation of a new Indigenous Fisheries Management Board, an Indigenous decision-making body with an increased role in decision-making that better reflects Indigenous rights and ongoing land claims negotiations.
2: So in the 1980s, Indigenous communities around the lake began to start negotiating land claims with Canada. So in 1980, they set up an organization of stakeholders around the lake so that they could consult more, get some advice on managing. And the First Nations had seats on this board. It was called the Great Slave Lake Advisory Council. which continues today. But the problem was the, the structure, how many seats each group got reflected basically the political organization in the 1980s at the beginning of land claim negotiations. One of the arguments is that today, the structure of GSLAC doesn't actually reflect the structure of the indigenous governments around the lake just given the changes that that have happened and the fact that the communities are now acting much more as indigenous governments than they were before They're redefining who they are and what consultation should look like. So now, Caledicia First Nation is leading a push to restructure the Great Slave Lake Advisory Council to better reflect the situation of the Indigenous governments around the lake. And they're calling for creation of something that's called an Indigenous Fisheries Management Board. And that management board would be on an equal decision-making basis with the Department of Fisheries and Oceans. And all the remaining stakeholders on the lake, which include recreational fisher people, fishing lodges, non-aboriginal commercial fishermen, would all remain on the Grace Lake Advisory Council continuing to provide advice to DFO. But the only difference would be that the Indigenous groups around the lake would now, they would, they would have a, a rights-based um, position uh, to consult with people.
0: The story of the Great Slave Lake fishery is one of the push and pull of different stakeholder groups and management structures coexisting. In light of these competing interests and pressures on the viability of the fishery, the proposed way forward is just as contested.
2: So I would say the main tension right now on the Great Slave Lake is how to achieve a sustainable commercial fishery and livelihood fishery together. So on the Great Slave Lake, there's been sort of two suggested ways of going ahead. So the GNWT, Government of Northwest Territories, they have mainly focused on investing in infrastructure. So the fish plant in Hei River that has been run by the Freshwater Fish Marketing Corporation is very, very old and needs upgrading. So the base of the GMWT plan is to revitalize the fishery by investing in a wonderful new fish plant that has a large capacity to run a lot of fish through there. But some of the concerns that people have are, why are we building this very expensive new plant when we don't actually have fishers to get fish into the plant?
1: For Catladici First Nation, the way forward lies in changes to the management of the fishery, in particular, the Great Slave Lake Advisory Council, and a shift in focus to Indigenous-led research and monitoring of the lake, informed by KFN values.
2: Catladici First Nation has a different view. They're saying, you know, now is the time to fix these issues with the management structure now that there's very few people actually actively fishing. So let's change the structure while there's this sort of pause in fishing where there's this opening where too many people won't be impacted by these changes. So some of the tensions are around which way should we go forward. KFN is working on their own to consensus amongst all of the First Nations around the lake about changing the structure of the Great Slave Lake Advisory Committee. They've also been doing quite a bit of stuff around research and monitoring, the AROM program, the Aboriginal Aquatic Resources Mm -hmm. and Oceans Management. One of the main commercial fishermen from Catlidish First Nation works with DFO on these studies and I asked him if his knowledge is incorporated or, or you know, what, what is the response from DFO in response to his knowledge about that responding runs and he said he said they they listen but sometimes they don't hear which is kind of a, a common refrain about researchers in general and DFO specifically but I do want to say that quite a few of my Indigenous interviewees spoke very highly of DFO and even though they are attempting to change the management structure or the relationship, making it more direct with DFO. They did have really good things to say about them. But I, I was impressed by the many plans that KFM has for beginning to do monitoring on their own. So they're they're gonna do their own studies to see how changing the domestic area to making it a place where commercial fishing is happening to see what the effects of that are.
0: In order to begin to restore relationships of mutual respect and mutual benefit with the DFO, and to prioritize traditional ecological knowledge and understanding of these marine resources, Christine believes that Indigenous-led management and decision-making should be the starting point.
2: Clarifying that that something is Indigenous-led kind of gets around the idea that, that Indigenous people have a key role in deciding whatever, you know, fisheries management, but that it's not a question of giving over final veto power to Indigenous people. So DFO retains final veto power on all decisions. And even though that's something that I personally would argue in the future needs to be rethought and eroded slightly, at this point in time, the term Indigenous-led is a really good I think a really good way going forward to talk about these situations that we're, that we're seeing.
1: In the Great Plate Lake region, while federal bodies, like the DFO, work to safeguard the economy that commercial fishery creates, those efforts often serve a select few. And Indigenous communities, like Catlidici First Nation, have not always been the beneficiaries of that economic opportunity.
0: Indigenous-led strategies to management of these resources have always been in place, and will continue to be the most effective way forward in preserving the sustainability of marine environments and ensuring the coexistence of commercial and livelihood fisheries.
1: That's all the time we have for this week. I've been your host, Sonic Patel.
0: And Andrea Miller. Thanks for listening.
1: Terra Informa is a production of CJSR 88.5 FM, and all of our content is created by a team of volunteers. Many thanks to our guest, Christine Ray for her contributions to this episode. This episode was produced by Charlotte Thomason and the interview with Christine was done by Elizabeth Dowdall. You can reach us for comments or questions via email, tara at cjsr.com or message us on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram at Tara Informa. For previous episodes, check out our website, terrainforma.ca. Catch you next week, right
0: here on Tara Informa.